the evening uh, to be the example, uh, they both would have short sermons, and they would alternate back and forth who went first and who went second. And about the third speaking engagement, Ockengay realized Barnhouse isn't going to change his sermon. He said he just kept preaching the same sermon over and over. And Akengay, as sharp as he was, he said, I got, he got to know that sermon pretty well. He knew the outline, he had the illustrations memorized and all the gestures when they came in uh, to play. And he said, Barnhouse just kept preaching the same old sermon everywhere they went until they got here in Richmond, Virginia. And they drew straws, and Akengay got to go first that night, and you can imagine what he did. He got up to the podium and he preached uh, Barnhouse's sermon. I mean, he was great. He knew the outline, knew the illustrations and the gestures. And every now and then he turned around to see how Barnhouse was taking it. And, but Barnhouse, the master sermon writer that he was, he was as cool as a cucumber. And it didn't bother him at all. And when it was his time to speak, he just got up and delivered another sermon. And after the event, of course, they're shaking everybody's hands, and they got to meet in the vestibule, and Ockengay runs up to Barnhouse and says, hey, they really liked your sermon tonight, didn't they? <laughs> and Barnhouse said, yes, they did, but not near as well as the first time I preached it here four months ago. <laughs> some things you've heard before, some stories we know by heart. And that's the fascinating thing about the scriptures when you stop and think about it, because as often as we turn the pages in this book, if we pray before we do, God will open our eyes and help us to see not just the same old story, um, but something we've overlooked. Most importantly, I hope he instills and lights the fire in the desire that needs to be there. Let's, let's have a prayer. Father, I thank you again for an opportunity to share the word, and I pray that you will work through me. I pray that as we talk about the story of Joseph, that we'll understand how important it is to be the best we can in all circumstances, and to see the value in that in the life that he lived, the example that he gives us today that is so much like Jesus. For it's in your son's name we do pray. Amen. The fathers, well, Genesis 37, if you want to turn there. And if you don't mind, I need to do something a little different. I'm going to do a lot of explaining instead of a lot of a reading, just to do something different. The father's favorite, the coat of many colors, the jealousy, the abduction, sold into slavery. Who here doesn't remember the story in the life of Joseph in Genesis 37? He had it pretty rough, didn't he? all because he wanted to do what was right. Remember the story? Joseph brings back a bad report of his brother's obvious misbehavior, and his relationship with his brothers depreciate from then on. But Jacob appreciated him, though, and shows him favor above all the rest of his sons my wife would like you to believe, because he was Rachel's firstborn. Now, if you remember Aaron's intriguing sermon a few weeks ago, Joseph was just head over heels 
over Rachel. He just loved her. Oh, he thought she was the best thing on two legs and couldn't wait to marry her. But the night of his wedding, as us ex-Marines would say, his father-in-law tricked him, wined him and dined him so much that he didn't know east from west. And the next morning he wakes up to to Leah instead of Rachel. But he loves Rachel so much he works another seven years. And the time goes by that fast. And you see, that's why uh, Jacob favored Joseph over the rest of his sons, because favorite son from favorite wife. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible tells us that Jacob favored Joseph in Genesis 37.3 because he bore him in his old age. You know, what parent doesn't treasure look after, bring attention to, demand the siblings to watch over more than the youngest. Now look after him. Don't let him wander off. Uh, don't let him fall and pick him up. Why is he crying? What did you do? Isn't that the way the, the parents love to, you know, take care of the youngest? They just love them because they're the youngest. And the older we get, we just seem to treasure those little ones. And, uh, and yet the Bible's also clear in context that Jacob favored his son Joseph because Joseph could be trusted. He was reliable. He matured very early in life. Some do, you know. Some take a little longer, and some never do, as the Bible often illustrates. But Joseph did, and Jacob expressed his appreciation by giving him a very colored tunic, which is the literal Hebrew translation for a coat of many colors. And his brothers hated him, the Bible said, and could not speak to him on friendly terms there in verse 4. He would dream dreams of supremacy over them that someday, you know, they would bow down. And I believe it was unbeknown to him exactly what the prayer was about, but that they were in it, and that was about it. But even though they hated him even more, but it didn't end there, still other dreams of his advancing authority would come to him, and he would share it with them. He was excited about it. He, I imagine, was just puzzled and enthralled and excited. But the Bible says in verse 10 that they were jealous of him. Later in verse 18, his father would send him to check on his brothers again. They were tending the sheep in a nearby area called Shechem. But when they saw him coming, the Bible says, they said, here comes the dreamer. And they plotted his death. Reuben, the oldest, would stop it. Talked him into throwing him in the pit. And he hoped to come back and and rescue him later. And when he does, it's empty. They had sold Joseph to a caravan uh, that was passing by, and he's on his way to Egypt. And there's still more. In the heat of their jealousy, Joseph's brothers kill a goat, take his multicolored coat and dip it in the blood and give it to Dad and say, he must have been slain. And if that wasn't enough... When he gets to Egypt, after he's sold to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's high officials, his talents and his loyalty are recognized once more. The Bible says that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. And yet because he wouldn't succumb to the promiscuity of Joseph, of Potiphar's wife, he finds himself in prison again. All because he wanted to do what was right. And I have to ask you, is it worth it all? Is it worth the, the, uh, the hassle that we go through at times because we want to stand up for religious freedoms? That we believe that every 
human being has an inherent right to life, that we believe in pro-life, that we believe it should be okay for our kids to assemble together in the school if they want to pray or to have a Bible study during break. Is it worth the hassle? And see if your answer is yes. Let me remind you, there's a price to pay for that answer. Because like the Joseph in the book of Genesis, the Joseph of our days don't have it any easier. I'd like to entitle this sermon, The Price We Pay for Righteousness, but I'd rather study the character of the man who never wavered and ask the question, how did he do it? And if I could look at one more verse, it would be over in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, where the Apostle Paul tells us, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. On opening day in 1954 baseball season, the Milwaukee Braves were visiting the Cincinnati Reds, and two rookies would start their major league career that day. A man by the, the, the Reds would uh, win the game 9-8, uh, uh, as the Jim Greengrass, with a man a name made for baseball, would start his career. And I think Jim Greengrass is as bad as my last name, Marsh. But Jim Greengrass, was, with a made-for-baseball name, started his career with an impressive beginning by hitting four doubles in his first big league game. But the rookie starting out in left field for the Braves was 0-5. Every time he got to bat, all five times he never hit the ball. Not a very good start for the best baseball legend, Henry Aaron, but we know his season got better. But is that all Joseph had going for him? Sheer willpower and tenacity and determination? Well, if you thought that's all that Henry Aaron had, you don't know Henry Aaron. He was a man of foundation and faith. He believed in God and he practiced his faith. And if you think that's all that Paul meant in Galatians 6, 9, you don't know him either. He'd be the first to tell you, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength in Philippians 4.13. That we are more than conquerors through him who loved us in Romans 8.37. That God supplies all our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus there in Philippians 4.19. But hey, wait a minute. Isn't that the blessing of living under a New Testament covenant and under the grace of Christ today? How did Joseph do it? He lived 200 years before Moses penned the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. And yet, you know, when you think of that uh, power of the scriptures, of instruction and encouragement and guidance that the scriptures give us, how did Joseph do it? My understanding of the scriptures is that Joseph treasured his time with God. That's the first reason his character didn't waver. He treasured his time with God when God communicated to him in his dreams. Now, let's not get carried away with the idea of dreams. So I can't wait to go to bed tonight so I can dream. The Lord talked to me, you know. Um, Hebrews 1.1 says, In the past, in the past, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, at many times, in various ways. And that was an audio-visual that he gave them all throughout the Bible. Today we live. It was an 
audio word. Today we live in the period of the written word. And we have more communication from God to us in this book than the prophets ever had. And we should treasure it like they did. The Bible tells us in the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times in various ways. And he chose to communicate with Joseph uh, in a dream. Joseph didn't wake up uh, shaking, you know, thinking, what did I dream? What was that all about? He woke up remembering everything, reciting it in great detail. He wasn't awake when it happened. That's a vision. He wasn't caught up in a 360 panorama. That's what John experienced on the island of Patmos in the Revelation. God spoke to Joseph during his sleep, and the scriptures reveal to us that God used dreams many times in the Bible to communicate his will to his prophets, reveal his plans, and to announce his future events. They were the oracles of God and greatly to be treasured. And I ask myself, why don't people treasure the scriptures that we have today? There is so much there. It's like every time I open the book and start looking through it, I don't care where I turn to it. God speaks to me. There's something relevant, and it means something, and I... I tarry over it thinking, you know, the different applications. And uh, it's just interesting how that works, and we need to treasure it. But why don't people read the Scriptures and treasure it like the Old Testament prophets did at the times that God communicated with them? William Engle said, when we spend 16 hours in the tangible... And you know what I mean. Things of this world, and the internet, the TV, and the social media. And only five minutes a day with God. Is it no wonder that those things are 200 times more real? And that's so sad. Joseph treasured his time with God. And you can sense it in his joy and his excitement and the fact that when God spoke to him, like in Genesis 35, verse uh, 5 and 6, what's the first thing he does? Runs and shares it with his brothers. Because they were in it, there's something more. John Gill's exposition of the Bible expresses that the Hebrew here expresses doubt that Joseph really knew fully what he was dreaming, just that his brothers were in it and went to them out of curiosity to share it with them. He shouts in Genesis 37, 6, listen to this dream I had. And when he conveys the experience, they knew what it meant. Look over in verse 7. I got to read the Bible. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my chef rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down. And his brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more. I think the situation that we have here is that Joseph, in all likelihood, in his younger years, probably didn't have to tend the sheep. His father gives him this coat of many colors. And now he's having dreams from God that he was more special than they were. And you can imagine how they felt. And what irks them the most is that when Joseph came to them to tell them the dream, they thought he knew exactly what it meant. 
and they hated him all the more. And then in verse 9, which represents a few days later, what does Joseph experience? Hey, hey, had another dream. You got to hear this. And hating even more and plotted his death. What am I trying to illustrate? That Joseph what? He was thrilled over his personal, intimate way that God was communicating with him, and he was eager to share it. When we read the scriptures and we get those personal, intimate stories, those valuable stories the Holy Spirit touches us with, what do you do with it? It's just something to think about. We see here in this verse that this was his situation with his brothers. And then if you go over to chapter 39 and verse 23, uh, in chapter 40, Joseph also uh, has the same experience with the baker and the cupbearer. And uh, we find him here in prison. He chose against the illicit fare with Potiphar's wife, and we'll talk about that in a second. But in verse uh, chapter 39, I get to read the scriptures again. Look at verse 23. Before he goes to prison, this is a situation. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. I think the young people call it buff. Don't they call it buff today? And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. Don't blush at that. You've heard worse and seen worse on TV and what our kids are involved in. What I want you to notice and be proud of is that next verse. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in his house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. Now then, could I do so? how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her or around her. That's an interesting position. And because of it, he was, um, you know the story, she grabbed his coat one time on an invitation and he took off. And again, he finds himself back in prison. When he's in prison, he has an opportunity to be himself, and the warden realizes that the Lord blesses him in everything he does and put him in charge of the entire prison. So now he's in a managerial position. He's not micromanaged because the, the warden knows that he's a good man of character and uh, he goes about his business doing everything that he needs to do. And he, comes, and he comes to a time where he can really practice his talents, which is compassion and care, and listens to two stories from a baker and a cupbearer. Now, they're in prison also because bakers and cupbearers, of course, provide for the pharaoh, and obviously they messed up. Uh, probably spilled the wine, or it wasn't the best, or uh, the baker, uh, who knows, uh, burnt something. And uh, they threw him in prison. And they're there, and one morning they wake up because they are just still spellbound over a dream that they had. And Joseph shows compassion because he's like that managerial uh, person. And he says, what's troubling you? And they talked about a dream that they had and were puzzled. And Joseph says, do not interpretations belong to God? 
and that's the witness. And you think, man, that's it. We're spending all this time, and he says that, and you're making that to be such a big thing. And you have to ask yourself, how much do you have to do before you realize how important you are to building the kingdom of God here at Chester Christian Church? Lynette's ministry is powerful, but maybe you don't have something that you're involved in like that. And you're wondering, how important am I? What can I do? It doesn't sound like much when Joseph says, do not interpretations belong to God. But remember in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, the Apostle Paul said, some plant, some water, but it's God that causes the growth. And I think I turned too many pages. Maybe something, sometimes all we need to do is tell a co-worker that we're praying for him. Share a scripture that we learned uh, the day. Invite him to church. There's no doubt that God loves to use the human instrument. Paul tells us that in Ephesians 2.10, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And there are many ways in which he does that. In Ephesians 4.11, he says, he was, It was he who gave some to be apostles and some to be prophets and some to be evangelists and some to be pastors to build up the body of Christ. But even if you're not a Lynette or one of the pastors or elders, you're thinking, you know, what can I do? And the Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians 4.5, and this is really important, we think church is only in here. No, not just for this hour. It's the rest of the week. Paul says, conduct yourself with wisdom towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. No matter, matter how small the task you think it is, it does matter. The Apostle Paul told young Timothy in chapter 4, verse 16, watch your life and doctrine closely. Preserve them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Joseph treasured the times that God spoke to him, and so should we. And secondly, his character never wavered because he valued his relationship with God. Now let's go back to chapter 39. Joseph arrives in Egypt because his brother sold him into slavery with the Ishmael Caravite, uh, uh, and they brought him to Egypt and sold him to Potiphar. And everything goes well. Again, Potiphar sees that he's a man that doesn't need to be micromanaged and lets him uh, rule over the entire household. And um, an African missionary once said that a man's true character is described as what he would do if he really knew that he was alone or what he thinks about when he's all alone by himself in those quiet moments. And that was the situation that he was in with Potiphar's wife, but he chose against it. How could I do such a wicked thing? He realized that it was both something that would be against the household of Potiphar as well as a sin against God. Joseph knew that. There's five things that Bennett, uh, Kurt Bennett tells us that uh, we can do to flee uh, from temptation. 
Um, one is take responsibility. There in verse 9, did you catch it? He said, how then could I? Joseph said he took responsibility for his own behavior. He realized it. He was in charge to make the call. It wasn't her decision. And how many might have said, well, what could I do? I'm just a slave and she's my boss. I mean, really, I couldn't refuse her, could I? I could lose my job. But isn't that the mentality of the guards at the Nazi concentration camps when they were caught at the end of the war and American troops interviewed them at the Nuremberg trials especially? Their response was always, you can't hold us responsible for the atrocities we committed. We were under orders. But Joseph saw through that because he took responsibility. Realize the sin. Call it for what it is. Don't rationalize or think anything light of it. It is sin. Respond to God. We see in verse 9 how Joseph recognizes that he, he, if he gratifies his desires, he would be sinning against God and nothing would break his heart more. Refuse to be present. He not only refused to get to bed with Potiphar's wife, but he refused to be with her. He didn't want to be around her. And last, run. Nothing wrong with that. Flee. Get out of there. Don't stand around and have a conversation with sin and say, well, I'm really impressed or I'm, I'm taken that you would consider me. Get out of there. We don't realize how much sin affects our life and realize how much sin can affect the lives of those that are around us. I'm waiting. There's supposed to be a, a picture to pop up. Ah, my grandkids. Minus one. Is there another? Maybe not. Just the grandkids? That's cool. I have a newborn. Um, yes. Pop it up. There she is. Sarah. And uh, it's my daughter. If you'll turn back to the one before that. Sin effects, not just us, and the person that we're engaged with, but so many others. And I think you get the point. So how did Joseph's character ever waver? Because he treasured his time with God. And he was so eager to share it. He lived it. He loved it. He valued his relationship with the Lord. And thirdly, he realized that he was never alone. No matter what his circumstances, regardless if he was a slave working for Potiphar at home or over the prison warden, the Lord, the Bible says, blessed him and he prospered. There's a wonderful verse in Jeremiah I'd like to share with you. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and hope. That is so difficult to remember those verses of Scripture when you're in the, the rut of life. You may have lost jobs, lost relationships, uh, bills are due, and now you don't have anything. I mean, it just piles up, and it's hard to really understand that anybody's there with you. Years ago, back during the Depression, there was a man, his wife, little girl, lived in a one-room 
apartment, and his wife died. And uh, he had a hard time trying to find uh, work during the Depression and care for his little girl. He was sitting in a diner with her one morning, thumbing through the paper, trying to find something to work. But he knew he couldn't do it with her. And he thought, who wouldn't want a little girl like this? So he folds the paper, and he gets up, and he looks at her, and he says, I'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. And he left her. All day, he looks for a job. And during the daytime, the waitresses realize that as the dad, like many parents did during the Depression, it was a horrible time. There were food lines, no work, no food, no, I mean, everything was gone. The waitresses knew the situation and uh, figured it out pretty quick. Kept going back to the little girl and trying to help her. And, you know, one of them wanted to take her home after the next. She said, oh, no, my daddy's going to come back. So they just let one shift go after the next, taking turns watching her. The man, all day, her dad just looked around for a job and couldn't find one. Came by the end of the day, it was getting dusk, and he realized his situation. And he came to a sense that he said, no amount of trouble is going to separate me from my little girl. And he went back to the diner as fast as he could. And there he finds her. Walks up to her and tears her streamer down her eyes. And she says, I knew you'd come back. Don't ever think that you're so down and out that you're alone. The Lord loves you. He showed it to us by sending his son to the cross as a sin offering on our behalf. He loves us so much. He gave us living oracles that span the time from the beginning of time until time will be no more. He wants to talk to us every day, and he provides for us more than you think. He's got plans for you. I dropped that verse of scripture in Jeremiah. But he doesn't plan for anything back to us, happen to us, but only the best. And we see it in Joseph's life. He also has an opportunity to witness to Pharaoh. And he interprets his dreams and is put in charge of the granaries because in the Pharaoh's dreams, there would be seven years uh, of plenty and seven years of hardship of plague. And the Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge of everything, and you know the story. He gets an opportunity to reunite with his brothers because there was no food. And they went to Egypt hearing that there was food in the granaries. And there Joseph is able to minister to his own brothers, and there's a reuniting. And it's just a wonderful, wonderful story. You have to read it. I love how the Amplified Bible reminds us of how much God redeems us and how much he cares for us and how much he looks after us. In 1 Peter 5, 7, in speaking of Jesus, it's written, Casting all your cares, all your anxiety, all your worries, and all your concerns on him once and for all. For he cares for you with deepest affection and watches over you very very closely. Thank you.
Thank you, Brother Bill. This is a good, awesome reminder just of the faithfulness of God and how he has just set in motion a way for Christ to enter into the world. Uh, 